shot fired. As a result of the wounds inflicted by AR-15 style rifles, the weapons used in the worst of recent mass shootings, Perfect. doctors, first responders, civilians, and children are now being trained to use something called a bleeding kit, an idea that comes from saving Americans on the battlefield. You believe that these mass casualty events have become so common that it is important for everyone in this country to be prepared. Everyone. That's where we are in America. Today. That's where we are. 36 hours from now, polls will open for the midterm elections. To understand what may motivate voters, we went to Texas. Yes, Texas. Forget your image of the Lone Star State as an outsized outlier. It may be the most accurate reflection of what Americans want and where the United States is heading. When we decide that we're going to invest in people, great things happen. We've got numbers on our side. There are a lot more conservatives than there are liberals. The liberals who are in Texas are really, really mad. They, they, they hate President Trump. That anger is dangerous. I mean, that anger is mobilizing. It means they're going to show up. The giant waves appear off Nazaré, Portugal, every winter, just as they have for thousands of years. Few surfers knew about this place until Garrett McNamara was towed into the 78-foot wave by a jet ski. He had a camera mounted on his surfboard and one on the shore, recording him as he got into place, let go of the tow rope, and began his record-setting ride. I'm Steve Proft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Scott Pelley. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm John Wertheim. I'm Bill Whitaker. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. The mass murder last week at the Pittsburgh Synagogue has something in common with the deadliest massacres, the AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. Variations of the AR-15 were used to kill at a Texas church, a Las Vegas concert, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida, and Sandy Hook Elementary School. The AR-15-style rifle is the most popular rifle in America. There are well over 11 million, and they are rarely used in crime. Handguns kill far more people. But the AR-15 is the choice of our worst mass murderers. AR-15 ammunition travels up to three times the speed of sound, and tonight... We're going to slow that down so you can see why the AR-15's high-velocity ammo is the fear of every American emergency room. 
Hang on, hang on, hang on. Mass shootings were once so shocking. Where the f is this coming from? They were impossible to forget. We have an after shooter inside the fairground. Now they've become so frequent. It's hard to remember them all. There's people here. There's people. They're all believing that they're going to die. Last Saturday in the Pittsburgh synagogue, 11 were killed, six wounded. This is the most horrific crime scene I've seen in 22 years with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Members of the Tree of Life Synagogue conducting a peaceful service in their place of worship were brutally murdered by a gunman targeting them simply because of their faith. Just 11 months before, it was a church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. Assistant Fire Chief Rusty Duncan was among the first to arrive. 90% of the people in there were unrecognizable. Uh, you know, the, the blood everywhere, I mean, it just covered them from head to toe. They were shot in so many different places that you just couldn't make out who they were. The church is now a memorial to the 26 who were murdered. I've never had the experience, not with any kind of weapon like this. For me to see the damage that it did was unbelievable. It was shattering concrete. I can, you know, you can only imagine what it does to a human body. The police estimate that he fired about 450 rounds. Oh, I believe it. I saw the damage it did. I saw all the holes in the church from one side to the other. All the pews, the concrete, the carpet. I saw it all. A gunshot wound is potentially fatal no matter what kind of ammunition is used. But Cynthia Burr showed us the difference in an AR-15 round against gelatin targets in her ballistics lab at the University of Southern California. Years of research have gone into kind of what the makeup should be of this ordinance gelatin to really represent what damage you would see in your soft tissues. So this is a pretty accurate representation of what would happen to a human being. Yeah, this is currently considered the kind of the state of the art. This is a nine millimeter bullet from a handgun, which we captured in slow motion. The handgun bullet traveled about 800 miles an hour. It sliced nearly straight all the way through the gel. This one's gonna be a little bit louder. Now, look at the AR-15 round. Hmm. See the difference? Yes. <laughs> it's three times faster and struck with more than twice the force. The shockwave of the AR-15 bullet blasted a large cavity in the gel, unlike the bullet from the handgun. Wow, there's uh, enormous difference. You can see yeah, right away. Exactly. There's fragments in here. There's kind of took a curve and came out. You can see a much larger area in terms of the fractures that are inside. Now watch from above. On top, the handgun. At bottom, the AR-15. It's just exploded. It's exploded and the... it's tumbling. So what happens is the, this particular round is designed to tumble and break apart. The 9mm handgun round has a larger bullet, but this AR-15 round has more gunpowder accelerating its velocity. 
Both the round and the rifle were designed in the 1950s for the military. The result was the M16 for our troops and the AR-15 for civilians. There's going to be a lot more damage to the tissues, both bones, organs, whatever that gets kind of even near this bullet path. The bones aren't going to just break, they're going to shatter. Organs aren't just going to kind of tear or, or have bruises on them. They're going to be, parts of them are going to be destroyed. That fairly describes the wounds suffered by 29-year-old Joanne Ward. At Sutherland Springs Baptist Church, she was shot more than 20 times while covering her children. Ward was dead, her daughters mortally wounded, as Assistant Fire Chief Rusty Duncan made his way from the back of the sanctuary. As I got a couple rows up, um, Ryland's hand reached out from under his stepmom and grabbed my pant leg. I wouldn't even know he was alive until he did that. I didn't even see him under her. Well, that's where me and him made eye contact for the first time. Joanne Ward's five-year-old stepson, Ryland Ward, was hit five times and was nearly gone when he reached trauma surgeon Lillian Liao at San Antonio's University Hospital. How much of Ryland's blood do you think was lost before he came to you? At least half. This is Ryland's ER x-ray. You see the two uh, bullet fragments that are in him. The x-ray shows you the solid fragments of the shrapnel and the bullets, but it doesn't tell you much about the damage to the soft tissue. No, and it doesn't tell you what's on the inside. I mean, a bomb went off on the inside, and our job is to go in there and clean it up. A bomb went off on the inside because of the shock wave from right. these high-velocity rounds. Correct. Ryland endured 24 surgeries to repair his arm, leg, pelvis, intestines, kidney, bladder, and hip. At some point, it's like putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. What do you um, mean? Well, his organs are now in different pieces, and you have to reconstruct them. The arm was missing soft tissue, skin, uh, muscle, and uh, part of the nerves were damaged. The bowel has to be put back together. Some of the areas of injury has to heal itself. So you can see that he can walk around like a normal child um, and behave as normal as possible. With the AR-15, it's not just the speed of the bullet, but also how quickly hundreds of bullets can be fired. The AR-15 is not a fully automatic machine gun. It fires only one round with each pull of the trigger. But in Las Vegas last year, it sounded like a machine gun. That's the AR. Go, 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 on. A special add-on device called a bump stock allowed the killer to pull the trigger rapidly enough to kill 58 and wound 489. Let's go! Come to me, hands up! In other mass killings, the AR-15 was fired without a bump stock, but even then, it can fire about 60 rounds a minute. <laughs> Ammunition magazines that hold up to 100 rounds can be changed in about five seconds. I remember hearing the gunshots go off and being so nervous and scared, and all of a sudden I felt something hit me. You'd been shot how many times? Four times. How many surgeries? Three. I, for my arm, my stomach, and my ribs and lung. Last February, 17-year-old Maddie Wilford was at school, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School 
in Parkland, Florida. <laughs> 17 were murdered, 17 wounded. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, there's no way, like, not me, please, not me. I don't want to go yet. Her uh, vital signs were almost non-existent. She looked like all the blood had uh, gone out of her body. She was in a state of deep shock. Paramedic Laz Ojeda saved Maddie Wilford in part because Broward County EMS recently equipped itself for the battlefield wounds that the AR-15 inflicts. We carry active uh, killer kits in our, uh, in our rescues. Active killer kits? Yes. What is that? That is a kit that has uh, five tourniquets, five uh, decompression needles, five uh, hemostatic agents, five uh, emergency trauma dressings. Dr. Peter Antevi, Broward County Medical Director, told us today's wounds demand a new kind of training. If I take you through one of our ambulances or take you through our protocols, almost everything we do is based on what the military has taught us. We never used to carry tourniquets. We never used to carry chest seals. These are things that were done in the military for many, many years. When did all of that change? It really changed, I think, after Sandy Hook. After Sandy Hook Elementary School, where 20 first graders and six educators were killed with AR-15 rounds, a campaign called Stop the Bleed began nationwide. They're really tight. And Tevi and doctors, including Lillian Lau in San Antonio, Make this tight. Are training civilians who are truly the first responders. There have been nearly 30,000 classes like this in the last three years. You have to go the second round to actually stop the bleeding here. Does it hurt? Yeah, yeah her face, you, you can undo it now. <laughs> the day after the shooting, my kids are waking up and they're time to go to school. And uh, my son heard, kind of heard what, what had happened the night before when I was on the scene. And he looked at me with the fear of God that he had to go to school that day. My first instinct was, he needs a bleeding kit. My son today has a bleeding kit on his person. How old is he? 12 years old. Here it is, this is it. We, 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 I've given him this and I've taught him how to use it. You believe that these mass casualty events have become so common. Absolutely. That it is important for everyone in this country to be prepared. Everyone. That's where we are in America today. That's where we are. Ryland Ward survived the church massacre because firefighter Rusty Duncan used his belt as a tourniquet. Look where you're going. Over the last year, Ryland has worked often six days a week. Slow but controlled. Learning to sit. All right, we're loosening up all your muscles. Stand and walk again. Okay. You're very strong. You're very strong. Let's see if this actually goes in the hospital. Yep. Did you meet some new people in the hospital? You were there for a long time. How do you know? They told me. I talked to some of the people who helped you. Like who? There was uh, Dr. Lau. Dr. Lau, yes. Oh, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, how's your arm? Good. Let me see. He has his strength back. It's remarkable, really. But healing from the loss of his stepmother and sisters won't be as quick. How's your day? Maddie Wilford is also moving forward. 
Like many who suffer physical trauma, her interests have turned to medicine and an internship where she's studying the kind of surgeries that saved her. Not long ago, many communities assumed mass murder would never come to them. Where's she hit? Where's she hit? Where's she hit? What's wrong with that door right there? Today, all Americans are being asked to prepare for the grievous wounds. Oh my God! Of high-velocity rounds. Tourniquet. Thirty-six hours from now, polls will open for the midterm elections, and 470 congressional seats will be up for grabs. One of the most surprisingly competitive races has been unfolding in Texas. The Senate election there, pitting incumbent Ted Cruz in the red corner against challenger Beto O'Rourke in the blue corner, represents more than just gripping political theater, a clash of big personalities, and record-setting fundraising. On the surface, the candidates have plenty in common two Texans a year apart in age who left the state for Ivy League schools before returning. They were even elected to Congress the same day six years ago. But in this divided cultural and political moment, Cruz O'Rourke has become a national barometer for American politics in the unlikeliest of places. As goes Texas, so will go the future of the United States of America. At age 47, Senator Ted Cruz has gone from Tea Party disruptor to Republican Party stalwart. I welcome my good friend, your Senator, Ted Cruz. On a recent Sunday, he shared the stage with Texas Governor Greg Abbott in a roadhouse in his hometown of Houston. God bless Texas. Cruz is equally familiar with the levers of power and the art of politics. Now, why is it that people come to Texas? Because Texas is where the opportunity is. Because Texas is where the freedom is. We sat down with the incumbent at a Houston barbecue joint. We've had our cameras following you for weeks. You're, you're working hard out there. What are the central principles you're trying to get across? I, when I ran six years ago, I I told the people of Texas I'd fight every day for low taxes, low regulations, and lots of jobs. My twin passions in life have been the American free enterprise system and the U.S. Constitution. We will stand together. In this solidly red state, Cruz comes to battle armed with a loyal base. Gun rights advocates, suburbanites, evangelicals, and big business. He also has the support of the sitting president. Ted's opponent in this race is a stone-cold phony named Robert Francis O'Rourke, sometimes referred to as Beto. Actually, it's pronounced Beto, a nickname for Robert that he picked up in his hometown of El Paso. He's a three-term U.S. congressman from the West Texas border. A former bass player in a punk band, O'Rourke has finally, at age 46, achieved rock star status. We are the defining immigrant story and experience, a border state that understands the bilateral relationship with Mexico. O'Rourke counts on the vote of Texas's millennials, minorities, and urban professionals. He spent months threading his way through Texas, while his small team live streams everything even the most mundane moments. So we're going to eat these after dinner. 
When we met him in Waco recently, both his odometer and his voice were tapped. I don't know that there could be much more on the line than, than there is today. I don't know if the choices could, could be any more clear, the contrast any greater. Why do you think so many people both inside Texas but beyond Texas are so captivated by this race? I think the way in, in which we are running it, without PACs, without special interests, without pollsters, without consultants, going to every county, all 254, um, at this really divided moment, everybody knowing that they're invited to be part of this. And, and the fact that some of your stereotypes about what you think Texas is um, aren't necessarily true. He's right. The state's longtime slogan says it all. Texas, it's like a whole other country. But no more. Forget the image of Texas as this outsized outlier. Right now, it's actually a strikingly accurate reflection of the United States as a whole. Like America, the state is more diverse than ever. Four in ten Texans are Hispanic. And Cruz's hometown of Houston is set to overtake Chicago as the third largest American city after New York and L.A. Texas is growing like crazy. There's no state like Texas. I think we've got uh, over a 1,000 people a day moving to Texas. Texas may be carpeted with flatlands and prairies, but the open skies are being pierced with skyscrapers. Texas is an urban state. Three of the most populous top 10 cities are in Texas, and number 11 is Austin. Lawrence Wright is a longtime resident of Austin and the author of the book God Save Texas. He characterizes the state in terms of two different radio frequencies. You've divided Texas into what you call AM Texas and FM Texas. Explain that. Well, I think AM Texas is what most people outside of Texas think the state is. AM Texas is, you know, Rush Limbaugh. Social conservative, very much about so, their gun rights. Yeah, evangelicals and so on. Uh, and yet there's a side of Texas that m many people don't really understand, and that's the FM Texas, which is more urban, progressive, more like other cities in the country. The big question which frequency will have the greater signal strength on Tuesday? I think that a lot of the uh, Tea Party uh, political figures in power right now see over the horizon, and what they see is uh, a big change coming their way. And that change is brown, and that change is young, and that change is not so conservative. That's the wave that's coming into Texas. Like all the midterm races, the specter of Donald Trump hovers over the campaigns. In the case of Cruz, his newfound coziness with the president strikes many as hypocritical, given how bitterly they opposed each other in the last presidential election. In 2016, you're running against President Trump, and he disparages your father and your wife. You're accepting his support now. Reconcile that. Listen, 2016 was a, a hard-fought campaign, and then there were hard blows thrown all around. Now, I could have said, you know, I've got hurt feelings. I don't like the things he said on the campaign, so I'm going to take my marbles and go home. Frankly, I think that would have been a really selfish decision. Marbles implies this is schoolyard stuff. Well, but, but you know what? What he said about the, your father. At the end of the day, it's not about me. It's not about being selfish and worrying about my hurt feelings. And, and, and so, listen, I, I don't apologize for, for not being self-centered and pa pounding my foot and refusing to work with the president. I'm going to do my job for the people of Texas. To what extent are you running against Ted Cruz? To what extent are you running against Donald Trump? 
I'm not running against anyone. I really mean that. I want to make sure that we are aware of, of the choice before us. Yep, it's, it's walls, it's Muslim bans, it's the press is the enemy of the people. We know where that road takes us. Uh, we've seen that movie before. But given the stakes, if we're only organized against those things, then we demean um, our opportunity to, to define this country in the most positive, ambitious way possible. Here's an old Texas saying, there's nothing in the middle of the road but yellow stripes and dead armadillos. In this case, both candidates are squarely in their lanes. He wants to abolish ICE. I want to abolish the IRS. What if we ended that war on drugs, ended the prohibition on marijuana? Texans are going to have a choice between a person who's seen as being too far right and another who's seen as being too far left. I think if Beto is elected, you can then say Texas is no longer red as purple. If Texas is in play, if it's no longer uh, the old reliable red that it's been for such a long time, then the politics of the country are going to change. Right now, the politics of the country are split in two with Americans taking unyielding positions on climate change, guns, health care, and immigration, a topic that has particular resonance in Texas and may be the biggest divide between the candidates. Although I'll tell you, I've lived almost my entire life, 46 years on this planet in El Paso, one half of the largest binational community in the hemisphere also happens to be one of, if not the safest cities in the United States of America, not in spite of, but because we are a city of immigrants. He wants to make it no longer a crime to cross the border illegally. That would be the very definition of open borders. I I just think that the politics of trying to scare you about me is a politics that all of us are sick of. He'll tell you that I want open borders. His mischaracterization, his dishonesty, his lies, he employs those tactics because in the past they've been shown to be effective. We're both Republicans. Cruz has practiced traditional retail politics and relies on his party's infrastructure, PAC money, and traditional media. O'Rourke has kept his party's establishment at arm's length. We've noticed you haven't had a lot of the stars of the Democratic Party. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, former President Obama, they haven't come to Texas. Are you trying to distance yourself from the party? I'm not distancing myself, but I I don't want anyone coming in from the outside. Uh, I want the people of Texas to decide this on, on their own terms. This election may not come down to ideas, personalities, or even money, so much as who shows up. Early voting in Texas has shattered expectations, up more than 500% among young voters from the previous midterm. We keep hearing about the importance of turnout yes. on Election Day for this election. If, if you look at the dynamics, we've got numbers on our side. There are a lot more conservatives than there are liberals. Uh, what the O'Rourke campaign has had on their side is intensity. The liberals who are in Texas are really, really mad. They, they, they hate President Trump. That anger is dangerous. I mean, that anger is mobilizing. It means they're going to show up no matter what. As I've said, they'll crawl over broken, broken glass to show up. Is that I, not a good thing? But look, intensity is, is always potent. Intensity turns people out at the, at the polls. You working on the assumption that the more people that show up, the better your odds of winning? Yeah, I think the more people that show up, the better we do. Why? Um, 
Because I, the people who are fired up right now are, are fired up to do something great for this country. That, that's, that's my sense. I don't have a pollster, so I, I, I can't quantify this uh, assumption for you. But the turnout that we're seeing is already off the charts. You mentioned no pollsters, no PAC money. And from the looks of it, you're running this campaign out of the front seat of your minivan. Yeah. Is that a good idea? Yeah, it's a great idea. Why is that? Um, it's fun. Um, it's, it's the most direct way to connect with people. Um, I love being on the road every day, going to one community after the next. It's, it's the only way to really get to know the state and the people that you want to serve. When we decide that we're going to invest in people, great things happen. If you believe in be low taxes and low regulations and lots of, of jobs, if you believe in defending the Constitution... You two polished politicians, both in their 40s, ascending stars in their parties. Is there a sense in Texas... The stakes are really high in this race. Yeah, because, you know, we already have one who ran for president and but for Donald Trump might have gotten the nomination. And uh, and then we have one that's already being talked about as a, a future presidential contender without regard to whether he wins this race or not. They each have a core constituency that wants to be heard. That's something they have in common. And it runs very deep. If we lose our freedom here, where do we go? And so, look, I believe this when I was 10. I believe this when I was in college. I believe this now, that freedom works. Freedom matters. This, this is going to be a defining moment for us. I'm confident that people in the future will look back on 2018. And they'll look back on this state specifically and say that Texas decided all. Every once in a while, we come across a story of people trying to push the limits of what human beings can do. Athletes competing not just against each other, but against Mother Nature herself. When we first met a surfer named Garrett McNamara six years ago, he just set a world record for riding the biggest wave anyone ever had. Surfers from around the world have been trying to break McNamara's record ever since. As you're about to see, someone finally has. Each winter, big wave surfers bring their boards and their bravery to an unlikely spot where the waves can get as tall as buildings. It's not in Hawaii or Australia. It's off the coast of Portugal in an ancient town called Nazare, where Garrett McNamara first had the ride of his life. The giant waves appear off Nazare every winter, just as they have for thousands of years. Few surfers knew about this place until 2011, when Garrett McNamara was towed into the 78-foot wave by a jet ski. He had a camera mounted on his surfboard and one on the shore, recording him as he got into place, let go of the tow rope, and began his record-setting ride. I didn't realize it was that big of a wave until it came down from above and just, boom, right on my shoulders, and it almost squashed me. I almost collapsed. It's hard for people who have not ridden a 78-foot wave to understand what it feels like, the power of that wave. How do you describe it? A lot of us have snowboarded or skied. Just imagine going as fast as you go down a mountain, and then imagine hitting some ice, maybe some moguls. And then imagine an avalanche coming down after you. 
then imagine not trying to run away from it, trying to stay as close as possible to it the whole time. And have it chasing you. And now the mountain's moving. And not just the avalanche, but the whole mountain is moving. That's what it's like riding these giant waves. It sounds terrifying. <laughs> For the average person, could easily be hell. If you haven't figured it out by now, Garrett McNamara is not your average person. He started focusing on big waves in the mid-90s, attracted by the challenge and the rush of adrenaline he got riding them. Before setting the world record, he'd already made a name for himself with some incredible rides and some epic wipeouts. I broke ribs three different times, broke feet, hurt this knee, back, stitches from head to toe. How many times have you been stitched up? I don't know, at least 100, if not more. And then I, I've stopped going to the doctor. I just use crazy glue now. So I just, <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, I crazy glue everything. If I can crazy glue it, it's getting crazy glued. If you put it perfectly back together and put some crazy glue on it, <laughs> done. And back in the water that day. McNamara first surfed the waters off Nazaré, Portugal in 2010. What do people think of you here? I know in the beginning they thought I was absolutely crazy. because A local resident had emailed him this picture of a wave, hoping to attract surfers and boost the local economy. For generations, Nazaré was known as a sleepy fishing village. It was only the town's fishermen who braved these treacherous waters. Hundreds have drowned within sight of their loved ones on shore. When we first came here in 2012, there weren't many surfers riding these monster waves. Today, thanks in large part to Garrett McNamara, the water is now crowded with them. And on shore, throngs of spectators gather around a 100-year-old lighthouse to watch the incredible rides and dangerous falls. It's like water world. And they're like fight, dog fight for waves now. It's really funny. People I'm are like, competing for waves. Yeah, competing, fighting. Yeah, uh -huh. full on. Surfers want to challenge themselves here in Nazareth. This is the proving ground when it comes to a team. Much more about teamwork here. You need somebody with a jet ski to watch over you. And once it gets over 60 feet, yeah, everybody's challenging themselves and their skills here. It's dangerous even for the jet skiers. Oh, it's almost more dangerous because you got this big machine. All of a sudden, if a wave lands on you and you're stuck with the machine. Oy. Last November, McNamara was riding a jet ski, towing his friend, British surfer Andrew Cotton, into this massive wave in Nazare. Andrew Cotton. It didn't go as planned. And the bomb. Ah. This thing literally exploded like a bomb. Mm. And he flew in the midair like a cannonball. He was a human cannonball. Cotton was in the wrong spot on the wave and had to jump off his board. He disappeared momentarily before being thrown forward like a rag doll. 
He landed hard on the water and broke his back. The shock went through my back. It was, it was like hitting concrete. Cotton was rescued and brought onto the beach. He spent months recovering, but is already back in Nazare, surfing once again. As wipeouts go, it wasn't really that bad. Dude, you broke your back. Yeah, but I mean... it, was, it was an impact. And, and the thing is, is, the amazing thing about Nazare is you never know what you're going to get. That's what makes Nazare so exciting. The same day Andrew Cotton got hurt, a Brazilian surfer named Rodrigo Cocha caught the ride of his life on this wave that some observers thought might have broken Garrett McNamara's record. Maya, you are officially amazing. And just a few months later, another Brazilian surfer, Maya Guevara, set a new women's world record on a wave that measured 68 feet. Who do you think will be the next surfer to set a world record here? There's a lot of capable people to set the next world record. We wanted to see these world-famous waves up close. Okay. So we rigged McNamara's jet ski with three mini cameras all on the whole time. and attached another to the end of a stick I could easily carry. We also placed three cameras with high-powered zoom lenses on the cliffs overlooking where the waves break and hired another cameraman, George Leal, to follow us. With eight cameras rolling and two jet skis, we took off from the harbor in Nazareth. So this is the area you try to serve it? Yeah. We hope to see for ourselves just how powerful and dangerous the waves here are. I'm good. Come right on up. Hold on tight. We had no idea what we were in for. Oh, yeah. Look at that. McNamara considered these waves relatively tame. They were only 20 to 30 feet high. Right there. Look right there, Anderson. Whoa. Rainbow, rainbow. <laughs> wow, look at the rainbow. Yeah, look at that. Holy moly. That's amazing. Now it's time to hold on. It's not just the wind and the current that makes the waves here so massive. It's the existence of an underwater canyon. At its deepest point, the canyon is nearly three times the depth of the Grand Canyon. It starts about 100 miles offshore and runs nearly all the way onto shore. All this energy, and it funnels in like a V. So all this energy comes down the canyon, and as soon as it hits a shallow point, boom. Getting hit with all that energy is, according to McNamara, part of the joy of big wave surfing. On this wave in Nazare, he ditched his board to prevent it from hitting him. You can see McNamara as a little speck on the lip of the wave. This is the view from the camera on his board. The lip lands on me. I get obliterated and I'm under forever. And I was just loving every bit of it. <laughs> It was amazing. The way you say obliterated, it's sort of blissful. It's sort of, it's a little weird. Go, Garrett. Go, man. Woo! What's the enjoyment of getting obliterated, of getting wiped out? I think it's just out, there's out of control. Like when you're riding the wave, you're still in control somewhat. You're at the mercy of the wave, but you can choose your path and your destiny. When you're underwater getting pounded, you are at the mercy of the ocean. You're like a grain of sand. 
in the washing machine on spin cycle going all different directions. And, and that loss of control is, you feel alive. Feel alive. <laughs> but two years ago, McNamara's desire to feel alive nearly cost him his life. It was in the northern California surf spot known as Mavericks when he attempted to catch this wave, which he thinks was 50 to 60 feet high. I was in the perfect spot, paddled, stood up, thought I had it. Oh, my God. Oh! And right when I hit, I was going so fast, it just broke my, shattered my head. The, hum had, the humerus head uh -huh. shattered in nine pieces and broke the shaft off the head where it lodged itself in my pec. Wait a minute. The bone lodged in your pack. McNamara was rescued by a rider on a jet ski and loaded into an ambulance. When you went to see a doctor, what did they say? The doctor, they said I may ne might never surf again. At home in Hawaii, his recovery was slow and excruciating. McNamara's shoulder had to be surgically reconstructed with nine screws and a metal plate. He was bedridden for months. I wanted to die. That's how bad the pain was. His wife, Nicole, helped him through his rehabilitation, which took more than a year. McNamara is 51 now, and he and Nicole live in Portugal during the winter with their son. He still feels the pain in his shoulder when he paddles, but he's back on the water says he's a different person than he was before the accident. You know, the main thing it did is took the monkey off my back. What do you mean? I used to have to ride every single swell everywhere in the world if I had the ability to get there or I was on suicide watch. You were always looking for the biggest wave. Biggest, best, perfect. And now the monkey jumped off. I can, I can be sitting at home in Hawaii and see the biggest swell of the year coming here and be so happy and just say, no, I'm happy right here. It sounds like at 50, one of the biggest daredevils out there is growing up. I don't want to say I'm growing up, but I definitely feel content. That may be just as well. Remember that wave Brazilian Rodrigo Cocha caught last November? After the World Surf League analyzed video and photographs... Our biggest wave award is Rodrigo Cocha. They declared it was 80 feet tall two feet taller than Garrett McNamara's record-setting wave. McNamara says he couldn't be happier for Kosha and for Nazare, which remains in the record books. He may have lost his world record, but that same month, he gained something much more important, a baby daughter. Her middle name is Nazare. In the mail this week, viewers commented on the story we called Inside the Secret Archive. The former executive assistant to the Catholic Bishop of Buffalo leaked the names of priests credibly accused of sexual abuse, names that were withheld by the bishop. Bill Whitaker interviewed whistleblower Siobhan O'Connor about her decision. Please tell the courageous young woman who released the material that she is a heroine. Our clergy seem not interested in doing any house cleaning. Even those who did not commit abuse themselves allowed it to continue by their silence. Why is defrocking or banishment, i.e. early retirement, the worst fate for so many? 
of these criminals. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.